Howdy, everybody, and welcome to another BP Movie Journal, the show we do where we talk about the stuff we've seen since the last time we did one of these. I'm David. I'm Tyler. It's been a while since we did one of these, it and has. yet we both don't have that much, because part of the reason it's been a while yeah, it's been a while is because um, we've been out of town. Yeah. I was... I feel like I'm... Like, August 30th, I went... My wife and I went up the coast to stay, to spend a, like a almost a week, like six days or whatever at a beach house with my family, like my, all my siblings, their significant others, their broods and my mom all stayed in a big beach house. Right. Um, it was a great time. Um, but then I went straight, like I literally left that on when, on a Wednesday came home and like had dinner with my wife. And then she said, all right, bye. And I got on a plane to Toronto mm-hmm. and then I was there for five days and I came back and then it was my wedding anniversary and then it was my birthday. And so like, this is happy. Happy like, birthday. Uh, thank you. Thank you. This is, uh, this is, I think September used to be my birthday and then it was my birthday and my anniversary and then it was my birthday, my anniversary and Tiff. Mm-hmm. And so stuff keeps piling up and it's just like, um, this is a incredibly busy time of year. And then you were out of town as well. Yeah. You were in Scotland. Now I'm uh, here for a week and a half and then I'm out of town again for yeah. a film festival. Yeah. yeah. But so we have time, but what I, the upshot is that even though it's been like five weeks or whatever, since we did a movie journal, yeah. we don't have that much to talk about because we haven't actually been spending a lot of time watching movies. That's true. Yeah. Um, and admittedly I'm, I'm leaving out certain films that are rewatches, uh, like on the plane to and from Scotland and all that sort of thing. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm actually very excited cause I just sort of assumed that you were going to leave me in the dust. Uh, yeah, no, but, uh, I, I, thankfully I, not because like, I mean, I, when I say I only have a few movies that I'm also, there's also 15 movies, sure, 16 movies that I'm not talking about because I right. taught Angie and I talked about them, uh, right. on the, uh, on the TF episode. So I only have six movies. Really? It's technically seven movies, but one I'm lumping together and you'll see why when, oh, when we get to it. Um, uh, so I've like, I've actually seen what? 22 movies since the last time we talked, mm-hmm. but 16 of them we already talked. Yeah. Angie and I already talked. 15 about. don't count. Uh, 16 don't count. 16 don't count. Um, so let's start. Uh, and here's what I did is I, um, uh, man, I need to set a reminder for myself about something. This is unprofessional to be doing on the podcast, but, um, I'm going to forget if I don't remind myself. Of okay. Um, what is it? I have to buy a ticket to a thing. Cause I just found out off mic. The opera. No, I just found out off mic that I'm suddenly free next Thursday night. I didn't know I was. Oh yeah. And sorry. so, uh, no, it actually, it works out really well because I can, I'm going to go to a thing with my wife, but I have to remember to buy the ticket cause mm-hmm. she already bought hers because she thought that I wasn't going with her. So, um, I am going to send myself an email impromptu date night. How exciting. Uh, it's actually a, like a work benefit or work, uh, function for her. Oh. Um, this is really what riveting. Is the, what is the, in a situation like that, this might just be a situation with me, but maybe you as well. So it's a work function for her work. Yeah. And you can go. Yeah. Are you, but it's a fundraiser a- thing. That's why I have to buy a ticket in a situation like that. Are you an asset or a liability socially? <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Um, like meeting her coworkers and all that sort of thing. That's a good question. Um, 
I guess I should ask her. <laughs> yeah. No, uh, I'm trying to think if I've ever... I don't think I've ever really fucked up around her coworkers. Okay. I definitely have around just her friends before. Sure. Um, not, and I don't mean fucked up like I've said something mean, but more that I'm like in certain social situations, if I'm not comfortable around the people, I can kind of tend to just shut down, mm. you know? Yeah. Um, and so there have been times in the past when like we've gotten in the car after everything and I've been like, well, that was fun because I went into survival mode and I like thought, Oh, we got the, well, when I say that was fun, yeah, I mean, we oh, made it. We got through that <laughs> and then found out that she was like very upset with me for yeah. like, uh, not being social with her friends. But I think because I'm also like, I'm, I hold down a job. I go to work every day and I'm mm-hmm. not like, like I get along with people. So I could, I, I seriously, I obviously have like a work mode, mm-hmm. you know? And so I think I'm good at turning that on at her work thing too. Yeah. Um, yeah, but uh, I, yeah, I, I should learn to be more, uh, friendly to her friends or like, I like, I like her friends, but it's often situations where it's like, if we're going to one of her friends birthdays and it's a bunch of people that I don't know, uh, you know, that's when I'll sort of like, stare off <laughs> it's tough. Uh, and i should i should work on that it's tough though it, like be because on one hand you're disengaged and then it just looks and then it just really conveys that you're not having a good time and all that sort of thing yeah but then to me that is infinitely preferable to the alternative which is it, jen will sometimes invite me to like a, a work thing where i'm meeting like other vendors because she's a wedding photographer so like other vendors and people that she knows and she's like oh you should come to this thing and i was like well, why why should i come to that <laughs> thing uh and she's like just oh they would love you it's like why why would they love me and then i'm like okay i'll go into performance mode i'll go into podcast tyler mode oh uh and but that's not right either because that's too dominant it is. Yeah. There's a, there's a way, but the thing is it's dominant, but it's also very curious. I'm asking them questions. They're okay. talking about themselves. I'm making an occasional joke when I can modulate it. Uh-huh. It works out really well, <laughs> but sometimes I'm in too deep yeah. and I get, I make jokes that, that uh. it's just like, like I, I take over the room and not in a good way. Uh, and so that, that's, that's the alternative. Do you think you know? you're are you a uh, a court holder? Are you one who holds court? I don't think so. No, um, but I think I probably have in the past. But I don't do it actively. I don't like that role. I like um, to be part of an ensemble. Frankly, I'll tell you. We'll get into the movies in a second. But uh, I'll tell you a quick story about my wife and me holding court. Mm. I don't think of myself as a court holder either outside of like a podcast type situation. Obviously that's what it would be. (laughs) I wouldn't be doing a good job if I didn't do that to some extent here, but outside of that, I don't think I do, but I guess, so my wife, you know, before I met her officially, I knew who she was and she knew who I was because Mm -hmm. we had a friend in common. And so she knew me as the guy who would stand in line for comedy death ray and hold court, which really, which is not my memory of it, but I guess it was just like, it was just me and all my friends waiting in line. And I guess, so in her mind, I was someone who held court in the county in line outside the UCB back in like 2007, 2008. I have had someone in the past. Uh, I have had friends who've said that like, and they say this in a, in a positive way. 
um, I take it negatively, but they say it positively, sure, sure. Uh, that, uh, that the idea of like, you know, you come into a room and, and like everyone is like paying attention to you. They're like really interested. I'm just like, that sounds obnoxious yeah. to me. <laughs> um, but yeah. And it, and it just, and then after a while you just kind of have to just acknowledge it like, Hey, it's, I can't help that I'm super magnetic. Uh, and just like, <laughs> and you can't help that, uh, you're, you have a more forceful and interesting personality than your friends. You know, I think it's just a situation where it's like at that time in 2007, 2008, Online, in line, you know, on the sidewalk of Franklin yeah. Avenue outside the UCB, Tuesday night, six thirty p.m. Yeah. I could not have been more in my element sure, at that time. Sure, so that's probably that's where I was. I was comfortable, and so I would do that. We're way off track. Let's yeah. talk about movies. So I, after my crazy life, you'll you'll notice that I eased myself back into movies with some real, um, not very challenging things. This, okay. was, this was kind of. So you, uh, another thing you'll notice, uh, Patreon listeners, in a while, whenever we get to the next uh, TV journal, mm-hmm. which will be a while, actually, but um, I'll suddenly have a ton to talk about because, sure. it's a, uh, I mean, my brain was fried. I watched a lot of television, mm-hmm. but I also watched some movies that, okay, here's what inspired it. Okay. And we'll talk about this on the main episode. We got a postcard from a listener recently in which he suggested an episode mm-hmm. topic, which was you know the what's replaced straight to dvd direct to market is the sure direct, is yeah. vod movies and he was like you should do a he suggested we do an episode on those and i um i was talking to my wife about it and i was like it's a fun idea but i'm not gonna watch those uh, you know it to do the research overwhelming to me there's just so damn many of them and also the the model has changed where a lot of these things aren't necessarily like we're, with the direct tv direct to dvd world yeah those things were produced with often produced with that in mind. Mm-hmm. They were made for that market. Now you've kind of got a different, the, the lines between theatrical and home video yeah. are blurred. So you've got movies that maybe, maybe and one, at least one of the ones I'm talking about definitely did have a theatrical release, but a lot of those are just like, uh, not to get into the business side of it, but they're kind of qualifying for deals down the line, you mm-hmm. know, and uh, you know, you can, you know, a movie is sort of, worth more in the VOD or downstream world if it has had a theatrical run anyway. So anyway, all that is to say that I watched a few movies that, uh, I think technically might've had theatrical releases, but are definitely available to rent on VOD. This is exciting. So the first one I watched, uh, and this is also part of my, um, I'm so close to, my, cause I try to watch at least 52 films by women every mm-hmm. year and I'm really close right now. So I picked one uh, of these VOD movies that is directed by a woman. It's Kim Ferrant's angel of mine, which is actually a remake of, I think a French movie. Um, and it stars, uh, that's, that's another thing is these movies have stars in them. Um, so this one stars Numi Rapace, Ivan Straha- Strahovski and, uh, uh, Tyler's favorite actor, Luke Evans. Um, now I'm kind of with you on it. He's kind of, he's a snooze and he's barely in yeah. this. Um, and also, uh, Richard Roxburgh, who was an actor. I don't oh, yeah. think about very often 
and even like watched this whole movie and I was like, I recognize that guy and looked him up afterwards and I was like, oh right, that's Richard Roxburgh. Yeah. But I think because I first knew him from Moulin Rouge, if he yeah. doesn't have a great big like twirly mustache, <laughs> I don't necessarily make the the leap like, oh, that's Richard Roxburgh. Anyway, so Angel of Mine is a movie where Numi Rapaz plays a woman who has uh, a young son, but she had a daughter who died as an infant in a fire. And seven years on, um, uh, her marriage to Luke Evans, uh, character has fallen apart. She's never gotten over the loss of this, this, this child. She's living in this state of constant depression and obsession. And, uh, it's her life is falling apart. She's losing mm-hmm. her job. She lost, you know, her husband is, has, has left her and is applying for full custody of their son because she's unable to keep her life together. And then she finds out that one of her son's friend has a younger sister who's about the same age as her daughter would have been. And so suddenly she becomes obsessed oh. and becomes essentially starts stalking this family. Yvonne Strahovski is the mom. Richard Roxburgh is, is the, is, is the dad. And there's this girl who's seven years old, just like her daughter would have been. And, uh, and she becomes obsessed with, with this family, with this girl. uncomfortable. Here's the thing. The movie is that it's, it's second half, I think is actually really good. And that's when Kim Ferrant sort of, let's go of the reins a little bit and let's it become the real like trashy genre ish type of sure. movie that it could be. And this is, I, I spent most of the first half going like Brian De Palma would know what to do with this, you know, <laughs> that that's perfect. Um, yes. and that's, this it's a little De Palma means like, trashy more exploitative hitchcock yeah yeah and he would absolutely love that yeah uh, and it, it, this feels it has that kind of quality to yeah it. and and the second half of the movie which is when it's good it is a lot of that there's a great part where it's almost like a horror movie von strahovski is watching her daughter um in her ballet recital mm. and she notices that her daughter keeps looking off into the wings yeah of the thing and then you see just the curtain moves and you realize Numi Rapaz is standing oh, in the wing great. of the uh, it's uh, scenes like that are awesome I think the first half is way too I think Kim Fran is trying to be sort of that I often use the term middle brow but I think that's a little bit too broad for what I'm saying uh, there, there's a certain sense of movies being tasteful like oh this is like restrained uh, yeah or just like being there's a there's a certain sort of washed out but very cool color palette sure you know uh, it's it's it it feels like it's trying to hold on to good taste before Mm. she gives in to just making the like you said kind of exploitative movie which is uh, not only more fun but i think lets numir pass bite into the character a little more once it's once it's able to to let go so um yeah, I can't fully recommend it, but uh, the second half I I, I liked uh, sure. quite a bit. Uh, Angel of Mine. Uh, side note: At this point in my life, I've known a lot of you know. I I grew up. I had friends when in we were kids and all that, and now I have friends who have kids, and I think it's safe to say that maybe it's just the the crowds I run with. I have never outside of a film heard the word recital like <laughs> yeah do you know what i mean like, are, you, are your friends kids old enough yet because that's some I think, of them yeah okay because that's my thing i have i actually don't have a lot of friends who have kids i have a lot of siblings who have kids but mm-hmm. the oldest one is about to turn six so they're not yeah. at recital age yet 
and I guess it's just like uh, recitals come with like okay ballet or like a musical instrument or something like that. Uh, yeah, but in my experience, not just personally, but also just the people that I knew. And again, my friends who now have kids, like they go to their kids game or their play or something like that. Like I don't, I don't hear about recitals outside of movies. It sounds like your kids aren't culture, culturing up their kids and are your kids. Your friends aren't exposing their kids to culture. They need to force you. Acting is culture. Plays Uh, are culture. Yeah, you're right. You're right. (laughs) But no, that's true. Is like, when I th- uh, when I think about it, like I don't really know that many. Uh, I don't think I knew that many kids that like played an instrument, or at least not in a capacity where they would have a recital. It was like they just yeah. took private lessons, yeah, that's or true. something like yeah. that. But anyway, okay. Uh, I do. You look like you got something to say. Yeah, and then I figured uh, it was not fit for the podcast. So, oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> All right, I'm intrigued. And also, I feel like you were you're going to insult me. Oh, no, not at all. Oh, okay, good. No, it was a story from uh, my past, but... Uh, oh. Yeah, maybe not. Okay. Maybe off mic. Fair enough. Uh, so I saw It Chapter 2. Did you? Uh, so this speaks to how long it's been since we've done one of these, because that film is uh, still making money, but uh, the conversation about it stopped a couple weeks ago at this point. Um yeah, so I saw the first one, and I liked it, didn't love it. Um, and the sequel uh, is, I would say, notably inferior. Um, it is a tonal mess. It clearly... It's tough, you know, when you, when you make a sequel and you hear what people liked... You're like, okay, we're going to really double down on that. But the problem is the the sort of comedic and then stand by me, uh, Stranger Things tone of the first film. Is that really what people liked about the first one? Yeah, I, I know it wasn't what people, I liked about it. Oh, okay. Because uh, I, I don't think I liked the first one as much as you. I, I would say you said you didn't love it. I would say I didn't hate it. Okay, yeah. But, uh, um, but the stuff that I liked was though there was weird, creepy stuff in it. I like sure. uh, it felt like the scares were there in the first one, and then the in between the scares, the stuff you're talking about, the stand by me stuff, felt uh, really thin for me in the first one. Well, certainly the characters are archetypes, uh, and some of the actors, I think, are able to transcend that. Um, But I do think that most people, again, from this, it's interesting because Stephen King influenced Stranger Things, and then Stranger Things influenced it. Yeah. Uh, And so I think a lot of people really responded to that and sort of the, some of the humor that that went with it. Uh, And so, but that's still organic. That was the director trying to capture a certain tone and a certain consistency with the new film. It's, Oh, people liked this. Okay. We're really going to play that up. And so the new film seems just as much, if not more committed to, I would say pretty, uh, shoehorned in humor Hmm. than, and so like there is some solid drama, some good performances. Some of the scares are there, but for the most part, it just feels like it almost feels 
focus grouped. It felt like, okay, we want to try and cater to this audience in this scene, this audience in this other scene, and the two don't really go together. And there are moments in the, in the edit that it like, there are moments that feels like it feels like they were found or more specifically manufactured in the edit. And you're like, what the hell are you doing? This is weird. Hmm. Like you have, created a moment of emotional triumph for a character or uh, emotional tragedy and then you've completely undercut it with this laugh and it feels like it was ADR like it there, mm. it's very very strange weird um, it has moments that work um, and I actually think that Bill Bill Skarsgård is doing better work in this than he was in the other mm. uh, he changed his voice and I like his voice more in this one than in the other one. Um, and like, there's a moment where he's talking with this little girl, uh, and we all know what's coming. She doesn't know what's coming, but as like, she's talking and he's just looking at her and like, just a drop of drool is coming out of his mouth as it's just kind of hanging <laughs> open. Like he's salivating about, uh, uh, with what he's about to do. And moments like that, it's like, yes, because it's, quiet it's patient and the mm. camera's just lingering on what is creepy that works really well but for the most part i think the film is just is just a mess that's too bad um always been a fan of the actor james ransone yeah he's great i think he does a, a great job um who's weirdly known mo- more for television outside of like tangerine and i can't think of what movies he's in but he's like obviously he's he in, in some the larry, wire he's in some larry clark movie uh, now i can't okay. remember what it is but uh is it larry clark who made kids yeah yeah, yeah. uh not lenny yeah. clark what was the, that not lenny yeah. clark the comedian <laughs> i'd watch lenny clark's kids so. can you imagine him it's like Okay, now look, here's what you got to do. Um, but no, yeah. I, yeah, The Wire and then uh, Generation Kill. Yeah, I think of him as more of yeah. a... TV he was also actor. on uh, Treme Season 2, I think. Okay. Uh, so yeah, all David Simon stuff. Yeah. Anyway, uh, all right, next up on my VOD thing. Oh, man, this one is the real stinker of the bunch. Okay. Uh, and this is a movie I actually did, I know had a theatrical release because we ran a review of it at battleshipretention.com that okay. was written by Alex. Uh, it is... Oh, shit. What is the director's name? Aaron Harvey's Into the Ashes. And man, this movie. Uh, and it stars... Um, well, the the main actor is um, Luke Grimes. Uh, he's been in some stuff. But then you've got uh, James Badgedale as the like best friend. I always liked him. And I go back at, and forth on him. As the villain, you've got Frank Grillo, who was absolutely oh, sure. made to be the villain in direct VOD movies. Mm-hmm. He's great. I, and that does that sounds like an insult, but it's not at all. I, I know exactly he's, what you mean. He's yes. like he in another era, he would be like a B movie icon. Yeah, like he would. Frank Grillo would be the guy who in 20 or 30 years, a Quentin Tarantino would give a juicy <laughs> role to. Do you know what yeah. I mean? <laughs> um, absolutely. Yes. But uh, Into the Ashes is basically, it's this mix of um, history of violence and no country for old men, except it is not as smart as either, but it thinks it's really smart. Oh, sure. It thinks it's really deep, you know? Um, And uh, I I don't know. It's it's incredibly violent, but also incredibly dour about its violence. Sure. 
and uh, I, I don't want to go. I'm not even going to go into much detail, but just don't don't bother with it. Okay. Uh, I mean, you get some good Frank Grillo, you know, menacing stares, but uh, it's it's not really not really worth it. But also has Marguerite Moreau, who's an actress that I like. Um, but uh, anyway, what did you watch next? Uh, I watched David Yarovetsky. Yaroveski's uh, *Brightburn*, oh, which I really liked. Okay, actually, um, I'm a, as as you know, uh, one of my pleasure buttons is sort of a genre bending type of thing, and uh, you know, people uh, people know the premise of *Brightburn* at this point, which is essentially imagine Smallville, but Superman is insane and hmm. evil, uh, but is dis- but is or I guess young Clark Kent is that, but is dis, but is learning of his powers. Um, and the more he learns, the character's name is not Clark Kent, but it's a version of that. And it's very clearly meant to be super, uh, Superman esque. Um, and so the kid is learning of his powers. And as he's learning, uh, he feels I guess this goes without saying he feels empowered and emboldened to, uh, do terrible things and get what he wants and all that sort of thing. And so what I really like is it takes the trappings of a superhero movie, um, and the same moment of realization and all that. And it just, it says, yeah, if you took, Superman and made him evil. We're not watching a superhero movie anymore. We're watching a horror movie. Mm-hmm. And I like that the film at first feels like one thing and then slowly and then very quickly evolves into this whole other thing. And you realize like, yeah, all it takes is a change of motivation and change of goal in one character to change the genre of a film completely. And I think it, it executes it hmm. uh, mostly, I won't say flawlessly, but like really effectively. Um, and I think the uh, David Denman and Elizabeth Banks as his parents, like, and they're trying to figure out what is going on. Uh, I think they both do a really great job with it. Uh, and more specifically, uh, they it's a bit tongue in cheek, but the way they the way the the film ends, they could make a sequel, and I would love it. Because at this point, it's like, if you're going to go this way with it, you now have an opportunity to have this character who uh, goes by the name of Brightburn, but it's also the name of the town that he's from. Uh, So he goes by that. Uh, You could have him grow up, and now there's a well-meaning millionaire who's Lex Luthor-esque, but now he is the hero. He's the one that's going to commit Mm. all his resources to protecting humanity from this monster. I feel like it's, I'm, I'm excited about what the potential could be. I, 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 there also could be absolutely nothing, but I think the film could have enough of a cult following that they decide to follow it up with something. And I just see so much potential there. Uh, Some people really did not care for the film. Uh, It worked for me. Maybe maybe it'll have direct to market sequels. That it could. It Do you very, know what just yeah. came out, or is it just about to come out? What's that? Speaking of direct to market sequels, Jarhead Four. <laughs> what? Really? That's a real thing. 
Yeah, Jarhead 4. People didn't like the first Jarhead. <laughs> I don't know. Um, yeah, boy. All right, so my final uh, VOD movie that I watched, and this is one I've been meaning to watch uh, anyway, um, for one reason it will be, become very clear, and speaking of horror, is a horror anthology film called Nightmare Cinema. Okay. And the director Sounds familiar. The, the directors uh, are... Uh, it's five shorts. Um, directors are... The first guy, I didn't really know him, Alejandro, Alejandro Brugis, Brugis. Okay. Um And then you've got Mick Garris. Sure. Uh, Ryohei Kitamura, who, uh, Tyler, you know uh, as the director of The Midnight Meat Train. Sure. And David Slade. And then the final one that I'm going to name. It's only the third one in the movie, Joe Dante. Oh, nice. So I wanted to see the new Joe Dante uh, movie and that's why I, uh, I watched this. So yeah, it's called nightmare cinema and there's a sort of wraparound, which is so Mick, Mick Garris directed the final sh- short in the movie, but he also directed this wraparound in which Mickey Rourke is the projectionist of this theater that people sort of, uh, walk by and it happens whenever they, they look up the marquee has, their name and the name of so uh, hmm. what that's what's interesting is there are no there are no titles in the movie until the end titles because the title of everything each of the five shorts appears oh, physically yeah. on the marquee and it has it has the character's name in and then i can't i literally can't remember any of them um and then they wander in and they sit down there alone and then mickey Rourke shows them horrible things happening to them yeah. in the story um uh, and yeah, there, the, the thing that I was surprised by, especially with the first, the first three, which are Alejandro Brujas's, um, Ryuhi Kitamura and Joe Dante's is that they're all like horrific things happen, but they're all kind of funny. Oh, well, yeah, that's uh, not surprising <laughs> on either count. Yeah. Uh, uh, Alejandro Brujas's one is the one that starts in which it's, uh, it, is it seems like a standard sort of Friday the 13th, like cabin in the woods type of, you know, not the, the type of movie that cabin in the woods was already parodying, mm-hmm. you know, except it started in the middle of like, most of the kids are already, already been killed. There's a handful of them still trying to get away from, from the, this, this killer who's called the welder because he wears a welding mask or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the leaping off point. And then the, the, each one of these is only about 20, 25 minutes. Um, uh, and then we realized that the type of movie we, the type of horror, like we think we're watching this cabin in the woods type of movie, sure. but Oh, also no, actually this is an alien invasion horror movie. Okay. Like it, it, it changes, uh, it keeps changing your perspective of, of what it is, uh, of what kind of, subgenre it is and who the bad guy is hmm. um that was pretty cool uh the right hit tomorrow one is uh really bloody and potentially very offensive to catholics <laughs> it oh, takes right. place like a catholic boarding school um in which uh one of the priests and one of the nuns are having an affair mm-hmm. and there's also some implication that this priest may have done other things that priests are unfortunately notorious for in these situations. Um, and these sins have arisen this demon Mm -hmm. that is jumping from kid to kid and, and, you know, possessing the kids and causing the kids to commit suicide and do all these crazy things. So it's like, 
it's incredibly violent. Mm-hmm. A lot of the violence is visited upon 12 year old, 11 and 12 year old characters. And it's also kind of funny the whole time. So that's what I'm talking about. It being like a real balance of yeah. tones, uh, that I kind of, I thought mostly worked for me. Sure. Um, the Joe Dante one is the more, the most, uh, body horror one in which, uh, uh, basically a, a girl who grew up poor and has from a car accident, a scar on her face mm-hmm. is getting married to this rich kid. And she, he mentions that his mom has had some plastic surgery sure. done and she is like, uh, agrees to like, you know, before the wedding, see if I can have this, this fixed. Um, and, uh, I don't want to spoil where it goes, but, um, yeah, the plastic surgeon played by Richard Chamberlain oh, sure. actually um, uh, ends up doing a lot more work than we initially thought, and things keep getting grosser. Yeah, uh, yeah it, it is. It is the in, most upsetting one. It sounds the way. whole thing sounds intriguing. Where uh, where did you find? You it? can rent it wherever you rent oh, okay. VOD Got stuff. Um, so those are the three. Uh, I would say the three best. In fact, I would actually say, in terms of being scary, the David Slade one. Uh, the 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 fourth of the of the five, um, which stars uh, part of it is that it stars an actress that I really like, um, Elizabeth Reeser. Is that her name? Hmm. Um, anyway, uh, and it's also in black and white. It's the one that's not funny at all, um, and um, that one is really really scary, especially at first, where Elizabeth Reeser is waiting with her two sons in the waiting room to see a doctor. There's clearly something wrong with her. And the way we realize there's clearly something wrong with her is that the world around the receptionist keeps becoming more deformed. Every time she talks to her, the walls start to get grimier. There's dirt on the floor. There's dust, mm-hmm. there's rubble, but it happens gradually and realize yeah. like this is, she's having some sort of mental issue yeah. that is causing her to hallucinate these things. And it's keeps getting scarier and scarier. Uh, my one problem with it is that there is a point in the movie where, the metaphor is made plain and therefore it robs it of its scares because at that point we know, yeah, Oh, this isn't real. This is a metaphor. Yeah. It's operating purely on that, which is like, Oh, which is a bit of a bummer. It's hard to be scared when you're like academically thinking about something. Yeah. Yeah. And the fifth one is the Mick Garris one. And Mick Garris, I know is a horror, you know, he, he's passionate about horror, but as a director, I've never found his stuff. I've never, I've yeah. That impactful. Um, the premise is, is, is cool. It's where there's a, a family is a attacked by a, some sort of criminal and, um, the, um, the, the the kid it's a mom and dad and, and a kid and the kid is shot and brought back to life but having been dead he can suddenly see dead people like okay um uh like Haley Jaws in the sixth sense but the difference is and this is where I like the the premise it's clever Haley Osment knows the dead people he's seeing are dead right this kid can never tell if the person oh. he's talking to is dead or alive. That's good. That's yeah, good it's a premise. cool premise. I just think there's not a lot of style to Mick Garris. It's very, I don't know, it's very by the numbers, I guess. Yeah, um, I mean, I I became familiar with him as a function of like his doing Stephen King TV adaptations yeah, in the 90s. Yeah. Uh, he did The Stand and he did The Shining. Shining. And, and wait, did he, no, he didn't do... Storm of the Century, did he? Was that him too? Uh, no. He did Riding the Bullet. He did okay. Desperation. He did Bag of Bones. Like, yeah, he's done a lot of uh, of Stephen King. But 
that's the thing is there are things that I like about the stand. There are things that I like about the shining, but I don't find them particularly scary. I don't think of him as, I don't think of him as a very stylistic director and that's not necessarily a crime, but compared to this other stuff that you're talking about, it feels like he's kind of sticks out. Yeah, and I would say uh, the stuff that uh, the because Mick Garris also directed the wraparound cycles with Mickey Rourke, and those are super cheesy, but are better in terms of oh sure. Um, the the production design is really cool. Mickey Rourke looks ridiculous. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, so yeah, Nightmare Cinema is definitely if you're a horror fan, it's definitely worth oh great worth checking out. All right, so we're gonna pivot quite a bit. Uh, I watched Alex Kendrick's Overcomer, um, okay. which is a Christian yeah. film, and uh, I don't watch very many of them uh, these days because I, I haven't done more than one lesson in a while. Um, but I try to I try to see the ones that are that are higher profile, just because that's part of a you know it's a conversation that I'm a part of, and I'm gonna be at a at a Christian film festival in a week. And, uh, this is the one that people will be talking about. And so I want to have seen it. And Kendrick has always been interesting to me, uh, as opposed to, um, like a lot of the pure flicks movies and God's not dead because those always felt just like calculations. Um, whereas his movies genuinely feel sincere. Um, what else has he made? Sorry. He made fireproof and war room and, and, uh, courageous. Um, they're not good. Uh, sincerity is, alone is not enough to make a movie good, but I do appreciate it more mm-hmm. than the other stuff. It does feel like he is trying to work stuff out in his own life through movies, which is fine. But and this is probably his best film. He is definitely he's become more confident with the camera. He's become a lot more confident with the editing. He's the lead character. And I think he's become more confident as an actor. Um, but at this and and the script is not, it's, it's structured in a way that, that works mostly. Okay. And the dialogue's not atrocious, but it's just like, just because somebody's improving, it doesn't mean they're there, you know? And I think when it comes right down to it, I think when it comes right down to it, like I don't know how many drafts of the script he's doing and I highly doubt he's showing it to anyone uh, that does not have a vested interest in making him feel good about himself, like a family member or something like that. Uh, The script is usually where these movies go wrong first uh, and then they go wrong in other ways. Uh, I've yet to find a Christian film that totally understands how to use music. Um, like it either goes like way too small or too more often way too big. Um, the way that it incorporates faith and specifically like conversion, like I love the apostle. That movie has three conversion scenes and at no point did they feel ham fisted to me three. Mm -hmm. Okay. And yet, Overcomer has one. I'm like, come on, do we really need this? And this is, and I'm a Christian. Did you see Come Sunday? No, I didn't. Who who made that? Uh, I can't. Joshua and the guy who made Maria Full of Grace. But who's the who's the the lead actor? Is it Shiotelaji for? Uh, yeah, yeah Shiotelaji yeah. for. Yeah. Um, and then what was the one with Vera Farmiga? Higher Ground. That Higher was not ground. bad. Yeah. Um, so, like, it just it it just feels. Like the improvement is 
the improvement is measurable, but it's also very small. And the big problems are not being changed. Uh, and it just feels like it's almost like it's like making slight improvements within a systemic problem. You know, uh, it's like unless you're going to make big changes, you're only ever going to get so good. Uh, and then I will say, here's a weird thing. Um, so I wrote an essay a while ago about uh, Christian film and approaching it as a genre and like different camera movements that you'll find and camera shots that you'll find in most Christian films. One thing that I did not incorporate and I re and this film helped me to really realize it, not just with this one, but Mm -hmm. and not even just with Alex Kendrick's movies, but with the vast majority of Christian films, you're going to laugh at this as you should. Okay. I look forward to it. When I think of, overcomer like i saw the movie and i was just like i don't think there is a single scene that takes place at night huh it's like dark city but but the the opposite uh now what's interesting is so he made fireproof uh which is about firefighters and there's a scene where there's a house that's on fire and it's in the middle of the day and i remember back when i think josh and i recorded about that and we said like it's more dramatic. A fire certainly is more dramatic at night, but yeah. it's like, well, you know, it's kind of, it's, I understand maybe you don't have the budget to like, yeah, it's probably for, it's for more lights. expensive to shoot at night. Yeah. But the thing is they have, Alex Kendrick has a budget now. He at least has the budget for lights. Uh, but yeah. I, but that's the thing is this goes back to this idea of not wanting to really challenge himself too much. And when it comes right down to, it, it's like, even if you have the money, it's a lot more complicated to shoot stuff at night outside Mm. and all that. And so I think of it as just like that to me is sort of Christian filmmaking and certainly Alex Kendrick in a nutshell, which is even when you have the opportunity and the means, it's just not in your wheelhouse and you're not going to push yourself artistically. And so it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, he's getting better, but who cares, frankly? Um, you know, I, I already I already talked about it on the TIFF episode, but I saw I essentially saw a Christian movie at TIFF. Okay. Um, uh, like I said, I talked about it. I'll mention it now because I know you're not going to go back and listen to the TIFF right. episode. Um, Terrence Malick's A Hidden Life. Oh, sure, yeah. But uh, here's the thing: Terrence Malick's philosophy. There's also like you, his approach has always been very Christian, mm-hmm. but I think A Hidden Life you could say is a Christian movie. Well, it's just, the story itself is is christian in nature right like it is a a true story of a man who an austrian man who refused when conscripted into the german army during world war ii refused Mm -hmm. to pledge an oath of loyalty to uh adolf hitler and um yeah a lot a lot of it was on his very uh strictly catholic ground on it was for religious reasons um and uh and yeah the, the movie is great and takes all that stuff obviously very seriously given yeah. who turned, I don't know if Terrence Malick, I don't know what he considers himself, but like, yeah, he's always, his movies come across as very Christian. Um, anyway, so let's move on. Speaking of change of pace and a jump ahead in time, cause we have okay. to this week, I saw Jill Colton's abominable. Oh yeah. Uh, out in theaters this, this weekend, uh, really enjoyed it. It's really, it's really, uh, lovely. It's fun. It's, it, you know, I, I think, I'm going to three. Uh, okay. I'll, I'll boil it down to three points. Each one of them. I'm going to compare to other sort of studio animated fair. Mm-hmm. Two of the three, it comes out ahead. Okay. 
uh, number one, it's a movie that is full of chase sequences. And I have found in recent years in these, the, these movies that there's a sort of empty hollow show offiness to like, well, the camera as it were can do anything. So let's have some crazy, you know, there's like uh, the Grinch movie starts with, Oh, I got to deliver this letter. And for no reason at all, she takes this, like she's like sliding through the town and, you know, going on, you know, riding down banisters and jumping up in the air off of roofs. It's like, there's not motivated by anything other than we can do this and it'll kill a couple minutes (laughs) and keep the kids entertained. Yeah. Whereas abominable, which is essentially a chase movie. Uh, it's about, a uh, this sort of, uh, Eddie Izzard voices, this, um, old hunter type guy who captures, uh, an actual Yeti. Um, it escapes and finds this, uh, girl voiced by Chloe Bennett and she takes care of it and decides we got to get you back to Mount Everest. And so it's them. It's a journey across China. Um, the movie takes place entirely in, in, in China. Um, uh, while Eddie Izzard and his, uh, uh, his hired guns literally are chasing them. Okay. Uh, it's PG rated, which I guess is more and more common than it used to be. I think I guess that's true. Um, yeah. I don't really think about it that much, but there's a part where a character is like, I'm pretty sure those two just died. And then I realized <laughs> like afterwards I looked it up and I was like, Oh, it's PG. Like, Cause you can only get away with that. Like, yeah, that's true. Uh, in G rated movies. Um, not that you actually see like the corpses or anything, yeah. but I'm like, <laughs> I think that was a uh, death. Uh, um, uh, it's sort of like I remember watching with uh, our old friend Mark Kelly went to see the Lost City. What was it called? Atlantis. The what was a Disney movie. You yeah, Atlanta, yeah. Atlantis. And there's like a underwater like dogfight essentially mm-hmm. at the end where these like plane but like seaplane. What do you call them? Like these yeah. submarine things are like exploding. And Mark was like in the theater. Mark was like, I think people are dying in this movie. <laughs> and that was also PG. Yeah. Um, anyway, that's not the point. So yeah, the chase scenes are not only motivated, they're really, each one is fun and, and interesting and innovative, um, and uses, um, some of the plot developments come out of the chase sequences and then are used to make them unique. That's great. Um, the second thing that I was going to say is that this movie is absolutely beautiful. Mm-hmm. Not, Again, a lot of DreamWorks animation or these, you know, non-Pixar animation, like trolls and ugly dolls and stuff is just like, well, this movie is bright. This movie is very colorful. Um, And it's just, again, it feels like it's just yelling at you the entire time. Whereas Abominable is is beautiful. In in a way, the movie is about how beautiful China is Mm -hmm. um, and how uh, it it does, because the there's magical elements to the movie, but I think the movie kind of bolsters that by sometimes presenting just nature as something when you, when you get out of the city and you're surrounded by nature, it's so overwhelming and so uncommon to a city dweller that it is ascend that it feels like magic. So, hmm. so you've got actual magic, magic things happening. And then sometimes it's just like so many flowers that it feels like it must be magic, but it's, you know, it's not so, Okay, the chase scene, the movie, the, the chase scenes are motivated, and the movie is legitimately beautiful. Now I'll talk about where it is too much like a lot of the the sure. one thing I, I mostly really like this movie, but my one demerit is the comedy, if you can call it that. It is <laughs> it is too much of the not actual jokes, but just like like there's only one of the 
quote unquote joke, like laugh lines in the movie. It's just two characters going really Dave. It's that, that sort of thing. Yeah. There's a lot of that kind of non jokes. There's stuff that is funny that I wish there was more of. There's a, there's a silly snake in the movie that kind of reminded me of the chicken in Moana. But sure. the, the chicken in Moana was used better. This snake only shows up a few times. But I, every time the snake showed up, I was like, ah, that snake's funny. Um, I wish there was more of that snake. Um, but uh, yeah, Abominable, I uh, really uh, mostly liked it. Every once in a while, your reaction to things is basically Norm MacDonald's Burt Reynolds. <laughs> you know, nah, snake, it's pretty funny. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, you're up next. Yeah. With your uh, final one? No, you have two more. Yeah. Uh, I watched Roger Michelle's My Cousin Rachel, um, starring oh, Rachel, uh, Rachel Weiss and Sam Claflin. Um, okay, I like him. Have you, uh, have, you, have you seen the film? I did not see it. I wanted to, and then I never got around to it, partially because editor-at-large Scott and I didn't like it very much, mm-hmm. I think. He might have convinced me out of like talked me out of it. It was uh, it was on the plane oh, okay. uh, going to Scotland, and it was a it was a film that uh, had caught my attention, uh, but I just didn't get a chance to see it. And uh, the selection of movies on the plane were it was uh, limited. Okay, and so I was just like, all right, well, it's either this or Aquaman, and. I just can't do it. Oh, so I, I like Aquaman. I know uh, it just seemed like so overwhelming, and it also just seemed like I'm not going to watch it on like a uh, right. you know six inch by five inch screen. Um, but uh, but yeah, uh, it's not it's not a bad movie uh, at all. I think it's it has a a quality that I think Roger Michelle is is very good at, uh, which is a very restrained type of tension. Um, and and maybe not always that restrained, but this one definitely is. Everything is just in the the drama comes in the stuff that the characters aren't saying, even while they appear to be saying something. Um, it's it's remarkably British uh, <laughs> in many ways, um, and I think it's 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 the perfect type of character for Rachel Weisz, who just whether it be you know, the shape of things or the constant gardener or, um, complete unknown. Like she's just very good at playing characters that there's just more going on. Even, even the favorite, I would say there's just more going on mm-hmm. than she is letting on. Um, Did you see disobedience last year? I did with her and Rachel McAdams. It's, um, it's not great, but uh, it's not bad either. And I'm sure the two of them, probably her, especially uh, are very effective. Um, and so she just, she plays this woman who you hear a lot about her before you meet her and you only hear terrible things and you expect her to be this, this obviously manipulative mm-hmm. woman who's just very like cold and brisk, but then you meet her and she's very warm and very loving. And at first you're like, Oh, this is an act. And then after a while, you're like, I don't know if this is an act. And the person that framed her as like, oh, she's really, there's something very wrong with her. Uh, maybe that person's wrong. And so I think that's where the film really excels in is causing you to like really question your own perception and your own assumptions of other people. Where I think it falls short is that 
Yeah, you know what? Almost in in the way that you were talking about, I forget what the your your first film was was called, Angel of Mine. Angel of Mine, where this film feels very much like the first half, and not that I want it to get necessarily tawdry, but you almost just like I I keep. And maybe this isn't a flaw of the film, but just as far as my expectations, like I kept wanting it to like get into an almost an almost low level melodrama. Uh, but the film stays restrained to a point that like I respect, but it doesn't totally work for me after a certain point. I wanted it to really delve into the emotional aspect of the, of its themes. Uh, but it, everything just stays so, um, vague and so pleasant that again, that it's, it's a definite choice they're making. And I, and I, and I do respect the choice, but I also feel like if they had just gone full bore into what they're exploring, I feel like it'd be more effective as it is. I think it's a perfectly fine film Mm -hmm. uh, with some good performances. And I really like what Sam Claflin is doing in that he plays a character who is very emotionally and romantically immature and just does not know what to make of anything. And so uh, it's a, it's, I'd say it's worth watching, but I feel like I see a lot of, not necessarily wasted potential, but you can see where it's it's starting to go down a, down a certain path, and then it pulls back, and you're like, oh, damn it, I really was excited for, for that, but it doesn't do it. Uh, all right, next up, uh, I saw a movie that I, uh, I really liked, and sometimes, sometimes I see a movie, I really like it, and I'll go and look at uh, Rotten Tomatoes, not because I care what the score is, but just mm-hmm. to see other people's reviews and realize sure. like, oh wow, a lot of people didn't like this movie as much as yeah. I did. And I don't really get it, but I, I saw a movie last night called Frankie directed by Iris Axe. Okay. And, uh, this is a movie that stars Isabelle Huppert in the lead role. Her name is Frankie. Um, Francoise is her name. People call her Frankie. And she is, are you looking up every movie as I say yes. it? But you know that I'm going to tell you what it's about. I know, but I want to see who else is in That's it. That's what I'm going to tell you. Oh, okay. Are you going to tell, you you do tell me all about uh, I don't, Pascal Gregory? Uh, no, I'm not. <laughs> I don't do that. I don't know. I'm sorry. Um, if I'm looking at my phone while you're talking, it's because I got a text message or an email. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, so, actually, in, in many cases, it's the director sent like the name is familiar. I can't immediately place what else they've done. I don't know. I, I don't know that. if you've seen any of this stuff, but you would like it. You would like little men and you would like love is strange. Uh, his last yes, two. I think I would. Um, so Frankie, um, Isabel Huppert, uh, plays, uh, a famous actress who has gathered her extended family for a family vacation in Portugal. Uh, her extended family, meaning her first husband and their son, who's now mm-hmm. a grown man, her current husband, um, played by Brennan Gleason mm-hmm. and his daughter and her family. And part of the reason she's gathered everyone is because she's dying of cancer. She's not showing it yet, but she's not expected to live through the rest of the year. You know, mm-hmm. it's the summertime or whatever. She's not expected to make it to the new year is what she says. Um, and then she's also because she worries about her son, this grown man who's still single and is moving to New York. She invites her friend from New York, mm-hmm. played by Marissa Tomei. Marissa Tomei doesn't realize this is a setup and brings her boyfriend, played by Greg Kinnear. Okay. So, um, 
I feel like what I just just described uh, suggests a farce. It's not that. Right. Although it does kind of have some of the elements of a farce. It's just not farcical. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? But there are a lot of like, oh, now you're running into this person and this person's running into this person. Yeah. And like, it's like uh, Lantana. Uh, <laughs> yeah. That common reference that everyone gets. Um, <laughs> But uh, it was really fascinating seeing the movie so soon after just having gone on a uh, family beach mm-hmm. uh, uh, holiday and, and um, uh, sort of not that my family like we all got along. We didn't like get in fights or anything. There are some fights in this movie, but it uh, it's sort of the movie sort of, I think, pinpoints the way that like a vacation is supposed to get you away from real life, but sometimes it throws things into, yes. into like it highlights things because like when you're real life, you can, you know, maybe you have some sort of relationship problems with your husband or whatever, but you're both working and, and mm-hmm. you got, and now you don't have anything in the way to keep you guys busy. And so these marital issues are coming up, whatever. That's just one of the, and, and so I like the movie. It's full of a lot of those kind of, kind of things. Um, it does. I mean, I, I would say for the people, you know, people who didn't like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood because it doesn't have a plot mm-hmm. for the most part, um, aren't going to like Frankie. There is no plot to the movie. Yeah. It's just it takes place over the course of one day and people get in fights. They go on walks. They run into, uh, oh, now all of a sudden Isabel Huppert and Greg Kinnear have a scene together because mm-hmm. they happen to be in the same place at the same time for a few minutes. And it's, it's sort of that for a, for a whole movie, but it's beautifully shot, uh, shot in Portugal. Uh, it's a Portuguese co-production actually, apparently. Um, and, uh, uh, yeah, look, it looks gorgeous and is eventually, I think, despite a lot of these people saying, mean things to each other and and not representing a sort of traditional family in any mm-hmm. way uh i think the movie is a ultimately um very hopeful about familial bonds mm-hmm. and that they mean something that lasts longer than any fight or even any divorce in some cases mm-hmm. um so yeah i really liked frankie all right. Uh, so you mentioned Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Okay. Uh, my last film is a rewatch of that. But oh, let me okay. set the scene. I was uh, in Fort William in Scotland, which is a small town. And uh, as we were walking out of a small coffee shop, I believe there was a notice um, that there was going to be a movie playing uh, that evening, it was going to be Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, but the town doesn't have a movie theater. So what is going on? Hmm. There is a company in Scotland called Screen Machine, and it is a mobile movie theater. Oh wow! Like uh, like back in the day, like it's. Uh, Did you ever see? Um, God damn it! I'll think of it. The movie, the Spanish movie where the girls watch Frankenstein and they oh. become obsessed with Frankenstein. What the fuck is the name of that movie? I don't know. What, uh, I know that sounds very familiar to it me. It has I the word bees in the title, I think. It's, uh, oh, no, it's not that. It's a really um, good movie. Yeah. Jesus. Um, Our listeners are... Furious? Yeah, they're sure. Eh, they've been furious uh, probably this whole time. Um, why are they... <laughs> I don't know, just because of our bullshit. I mean, why are um, they listening? Maybe they're hate listening. I don't know the, the way people do these days. Spirit um, of the Beehive. Spirit. That's right. Oh, yes. Yeah. Great movie. But that also starts at the mobile cinema. 
so yeah, this is, uh, it's, it's fascinating. It's like a big RV and then you park and they like, you know, push a series of buttons and then it expands. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it's, I actually had, uh, at Comic-Con several years ago, uh, they had one of those and you could go in and watch a scene from gravity. Um, and so, uh, so anyway, so I went in and, uh, and it was fun because like, all right, they're showing once upon a time in Hollywood tonight. And then I think the night before they'd show, they showed the new lion King. And so they were there for two nights Then they pack up and move on to the next town. How'd you choose which one to go to? <laughs> <laughs> well, it was the one that was that night. Oh, okay. uh, and uh, my friend Scott had not seen the film and he really wanted to, and I was excited to watch it. And I was also very excited to watch it with a non California crowd. Uh, and in okay. fact, a non United States crowd, but, uh, because when I saw it, it was, uh, it was in, uh, Woodland Hills. And so there were, you, you just get chuckles from people who just recognized things. Um, sorry, is, you said it was Fort William, Fort William. Yes. Is that near Glencoe? Yes. Okay. How do you know that? Weirdly just a novel that I'm reading just had a character oh. deliver a long sort of monologue about his home of Glen Coe. Oh, yeah. And he mentions to the person, the person he's talking to in the novel doesn't know where it is. He says it's near Fort William. And then I was oh. like, I was like, where did I just read Fort William? And I realized yeah. that's why. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's, uh, we stopped, uh, at Glen, Glen Coe on the way to, uh, Fort William. Um, so, uh, yeah, so it was, you know, in this case, uh, people were, people did not laugh at a lot of the, uh, references, which is fine. Oh, like what? Uh, well, like, uh, when characters anytime, like when I saw it here, like when Brad Pitt referenced a street or a certain neighborhood or something like that, uh, people would chuckle. Uh, and then certainly, um, in my neighborhood, uh, they, uh, they get off and head towards like Panorama city or there's a, you know, and so I live in the North, uh, Northwest Valley. And so, uh, people chuckled at that. Well, of course there was none of that in Fort William in Scotland. Uh, but people did laugh, uh, so no one in Scotland bit. was going, okay, so he picks up Margaret Crawley right. at Burbank on Burbank Boulevard yeah. and but then somehow that, gets on the one on one from there's Hollywood that seventh day Adventist church, yeah. you know, yeah. um, uh, he's clearly <laughs> pointed East <laughs> when he picks her up. This if movie, you know, this where movie the good is, night is. is what <laughs> yeah. they would say. Um, so, uh, yeah, uh, but as far as the film, you know, after a while, I stopped giving a shit what anybody else thought, and I was just let, let myself get sucked back into the film. And it is just a, it is just such a marvelous film. And yes, quote unquote, nothing happens, and yet everything happens. Uh, and it's 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 weird to describe any Tarantino film as quiet, especially because people are talking all the time. Uh, but it is definitely a quiet meditative film. Certainly everything with Margot Robbie is that, and just kind of this oddly tranquil, even in the midst of suspenseful sequences. Um, and there, there are, I won't say long stretches, but there are stretches of characters that are just, especially Brad Pitt, just like, figuring things out, whether it be, okay, I'm going to get to the roof and repair this thing. Mm -hmm. And there's no music playing underneath. And when he's, you know, feeding his dog, like it's just uh, this character living his life, but then also like 
Leonardo DiCaprio, like just he's on set and he's just wa- finding out where he needs to get to. So it's I don't know. It's moments like that that you don't that it, Tarantino. It's like he found a new way to play up the sort of banalities of life. You know, in Pulp Fiction, it's these two characters talking about hamburgers, um, but they're hitmen, and so of course everything they say is is charged uh but here it's he he is he's into different territory and territory that i really like that he's that he's into because yes we do also have certainly a ridiculous ending but we also have a character fighting bruce lee and all that uh but within that there's also just these moments of just like dicaprio just like sitting and reading his book yeah. You know, or them watching his episode of FBI, which is yeah. my favorite right scene in the face. Oh yeah. man, right in the face. <laughs> but uh, the dog feeding scene, uh, I still avoid like too many spoilers, sure. but I, even though I feel like most people have seen it. The first, especially the first scene where he feeds Brandy. Yeah. It's not only a great scene, but I also think it's when you watch it, you probably thought this when you watch it again, you realize how much is being set up about the finale. Oh, absolutely. not just about Brandy, but also, Tarantino is going to great lengths to make sure you understand the weight and heft oh, yeah. of a can of dog food. Absolutely. So that when it finds another purpose <laughs> later in the movie, uh, you really feel it. Yes. There's no question about it. And, uh, and I do contend that like it just, it is a film full of wonderful performances. Um, and, and I do really, that, that scene, I mean, I, I, it's hard for me to even pick which which Rick Dalton scene I like the most, um, but I I had a new appreciation for his like breakdown in his trailer. Yeah, um, where it's like he goes, he goes, you couldn't have just had two or three whiskey sours; you had to have eight. <laughs> it's, it's funny, but of course, it's also so tremendously yeah. sad. Yeah. at the same time, it is. I I just I adore it. I adore that film. Okay, uh, my final film, which is kind of two films, but kind of not. It's kind of a Kill Bill type of situation. Okay. It's two films in the sense that it was released that way, but it's meant to be one experience. Okay. Uh, it's from 1959. Um, it has recently been uh, restored and is coming out in, uh, the- is showing in theaters in New York City. I'm, uh, I'm certain in advance of some sort of Blu-ray release. And it is uh, a Fritz Lang two-parter mm-hmm. called The Tiger of Esnapur and The Indian Tomb. But okay. it's really just... One big thing. Film Movement Classics is putting it out. They're just billing it as Fritz Lang's Indian epic. Mm-hmm. It's one big story. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, to someone who's used to seeing Fritz Lang operate mostly is like his silent films. Right. And his noir. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is, you know, it's a late 50s vibrant shot on location Indian in a movie takes place in India is it in shot color loca- in yeah bright color um uh and yet it reminded me of going all the way back to his earlier stuff the Nibelungen which is mm-hmm. also kind of an adventure story it takes place in a fantastical land and there's part of the problem about the Indian epic is that I can't overlook the fact that this is a movie yes it's a German movie shot uh, i think a lot of the interior maybe studio mm-hmm. stuff but a lot of like the exteriors all shot on location including and some of the interiors clearly are not sets they shot in actual like palaces and stuff and yet every indian character <laughs> is a european in brown face sure speaking german i just oh boy 
Yeah, the movie is entirely in German, including scenes between where it's just two Indian characters talking to one another. Yeah. I guess the implication is that maybe they're supposed to be speaking Indian. Speaking, uh, Indian, I don't think, is a language. What, like right. Hindi, I guess. Hindi, is the, yeah. Um, but then there's also Punjabi, but I guess it, uh, uh, Hindi, yeah. I think, is the dominant language. I don't know if I'm right. Depends on where it is. Um, New Delhi is on my list of places to go, places to go and they speak Hindi there. You know? All right. Um, anyway. And so, like, the movie is... Uh, you know, the entire thing all told is three hours and 21 minutes. So still shorter than the Irishman, by the way. Um, uh, and not that that's a, but at least it has a break in the middle. Yeah. Uh, the Irishman, I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to all three and a half hours of it. Just yeah. give us an intermission. Come on. Yeah. Scorsese, um, like you're a film historian. Yeah. Give us an intermission. It's fine. Tarantino gave us an intermission for hateful eight. Yeah. Uh, anyway, um, what was I going to say? So yeah, it's, I, I can never, like, I couldn't ever get over how crazy it was that it was just all these Europeans. Um, and then as if that weren't enough, it's not just, you know, you could be charitable and be like, that's how they did things back then. Sure. But the movie itself is also super racist. Oh, okay. <laughs> like the whites are clearly the good guys. Mm. The, the Indian characters are only good if they either have European blood mm. or have studied in Europe because the, the main character is uh, an architect who's been a Maharaja has invited him, contracted him to build a hospital in his uh, state, I guess is what mm-hmm. you call uh, whatever Maharaja is in charge of. Um, uh, and so he's teamed up with an architect, an Indian architect, but he studied in Paris. Ah. So it's okay. No, he studied in Berlin, I think, uh, cause it's a German movie. Of Makes course. sense. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and so all like the Indian characters are untrustworthy. If they are good, they're good in like, uh, patronizing, like, sure. Oh, it's cute. This person's peaceful because of their weird religion or whatever. <laughs> like, Oh, isn't that quaint? Yeah. Um, the way they sit is cross-legged, right? It's like somehow I'm picturing these characters with like very British accents. It just uh, feels, but they're not, they're speaking yeah. German. Um, and so, yeah, the, I can't, I can't really recommend the movie all of that aside. And not that that's easy to put aside, but all of that yeah. aside, Fritz Lang is still a talented filmmaker. It, the movie yeah. is often quite beautiful, especially this new restoration. It's very beautiful. Um, there's a, there's that, that going back to Denis Boulogne, uh, at some point, you know, this guy's an architect, but he's an architect in the way that Indiana, Indiana Jones is an archeologist. Right, like yeah. this guy kills multiple people and tigers, um, <laughs> in this movie. Uh, and so he's like a total badass. And there's a part of him just like, he's just fought off a tiger with a flaming, like, like a log. And there's just this shot of him, like, half half his shirt ripped off holding a flaming log just like just glistening and yeah. it's like super like mythical looking yeah. and there's like there's stuff like that throughout the locations are india is a beautiful place um yeah. uh, filled with deeply flawed people <laughs> or apparently it's just or or filled with people who are entire who are exoticized to the part of no, sure. to the point of no longer being people yeah um and so yeah i can't i can't really recommend the movie but if you like Fritz Lang, you'll like a lot of this stuff. Yeah. Um, and it's also, yeah, Deborah, Deborah Paget plays the, the female lead and she's absolutely gorgeous. I, I, um, I couldn't get over the fact that she's in brown face the entire time, mm-hmm. but, um, she's gorgeous. She's plays a dancer and she has each 
each of the two films has a centerpiece like dance scene for her that are they're awesome um and uh yeah the 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 one thing that i kept because it so often it feels like like uh you know there's these big sort of overblown american epics of the same era um and i kept getting reminded that it wasn't that a because they're speaking german the entire time mm-hmm. and then b because this thing is surprisingly bloody <laughs> like when, okay. and it you know bright red blood you know it's yeah. uh it is surprising how often people get killed and we see yeah blood uh you know pools of blood or ripped t-shirts or just like someone staggers out of a tent with just a knife sticking out of their heart like it's <laughs> it's it's pretty bloody um but yeah, I can't fully recommend it. This it's, it speaks to something that I've found in myself as a film watcher over the years is that, you know, there are plenty of, of movies that you see that take place in another country, but yeah. the characters are all speaking English. Um, right. Yeah. And you just sort of just take that for granted, at least, Sorry, I would take that for granted when I was younger. But I think as I as I've gotten older, and then you watch movies like The Godfather, or it just it to it just to go with like a more mainstream example, where like yeah, they speak Italian when they're going to speak Italian. That's yeah. how it works. Um, and then or, or a movie like uh, again another mainstream like Traffic, where yeah, it takes place yeah. in Mexico. They're speaking Spanish. That's how it's. And then you're it's just subtitled. And so as time has gone on if I see a film uh, and I feel like I saw one recently and I can't even think, I can't think what it was, but man in the iron mask. (laughs) Yeah, that was it. But that's an example, right? That's That's a movie that takes place in France and everyone speaks English. Yeah. And just, and, and I would say uh, various versions of Les Miserables, I'll put the musical aside, but as far as like a straightforward adaptation of the novel um, is like, yeah, they should be speaking French. Uh, And as time has gone on, like it's, that's something that kind of, it's not that it necessarily takes me out of, it, but oddly enough, like I think because I'm more comfortable with subtitles than, than, were, yeah. than I used to be, uh, certainly yeah. 20 years ago or so. Um, at this point, it's just like, if you're going to do it, do it. If you're going to set this in another country, then speak that language. Uh, and so of course, something like this, where it's like, they're speaking a different language that you don't speak. Uh, so of <laughs> yeah. course it's going to really underline it. Yeah. Uh, or it could be, I mean, I guess German is so ostentatiously <laughs> not Indian, <laughs> you know, yeah. whereas if it were like an Italian movie, but they're all, but it should be in Spain. Like I could sure. just like, I'd be, I'd be reading subtitles anyway. What does it matter? Yeah. But German is very clearly yeah. not it's, an Indian language. It's not anything else. <laughs> yeah. I might, I might, if I'm feeling generous, be like, all right, I'll buy Russian out of you, <laughs> but that's about it. 